Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome to Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And my name is Bettina. We are doing episode 14 tonight, Mom. All right. I am really excited about this one. We are going to be covering true crime and paranormal stories from Texas. Texas. All right. Texas. I think about that from Miss Congeniality. I like when I do movie quotes and you it just goes in one ear and out the other with but you. But I know that movie. Okay. So because I am doing the paranormal tonight, I also am charged to bring the alcohol beverage. When you think of Texas, what alcohol do you think of? (laughs) I'll give you a hint. (laughs) It sits on the border of tequila. (laughs) No, it doesn't sit on the border of tequila, but Yes, tequila. (laughs) (laughs) So instead of making like a margarita or something, I looked it up and Paloma is the drink of Texas, I guess. That's what I read. (laughs) (laughs) But it sounded interesting, so I went ahead and made it. So it calls for a healthy shot of tequila, some real lime juice. And this is the first time I've ever seen this, but instead of putting the salt on the rim of the glass... It said to actually sprinkle a pinch of salt in, in the, the drink. drink. Yes. Wow. Okay. And then I top it. So is this literally going to taste like a shot of tequila then? It so does. <laughs> oh, it does? Oh, okay. But what makes the Paloma different, it is also, it's topped with, and don't, don't roll your face because you roll my like face. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all um, don't roll your faces. <laughs> grapefruit soda. Ew. But you can't taste it. I, I swear, you can't taste the grapefruit. I am not a grapefruit fan. All right. Here. I love tequila, but I'm not a grapefruit well, fan. Well, good thing you love tequila, because that's really <laughs> all you can taste. <laughs> Great. So these are the last coherent words you will be giving <laughs> from us tonight. Cheers. Okay. Oh, I have to try it. <laughs> like, you scared me. I really don't know what to say. It kind of <laughs> again. <laughs> it kind of tastes like a margarita. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's what it tastes like. But you do have that salt in it. I taste the. S- it's not salty, but it's Mm-mm. like. It's like when you're drinking a margarita and the salt's on the rim. Mm-hmm. No, so mm. it's not salty. But see, I and you actually think I really like this. Yeah, and you can't taste the grapefruit soda. It's a very light hint of maybe a little bitter because that's grapefruit, yeah. you know, but it's not. No, bitter. I don't I taste the grapefruit. So. And my husband makes fun of me because he says I always, mm, I like it. Yeah, that's good. I'll be honest, though. 
I was not a fan of the Cape Codder in episode 10. <laughs> was not a fan of that drink. But I'm not lying when I say this is actually not bad, especially if you like tequila. It's not as strong as a margarita is, though. Well, it's not as limey. I don't know. Mm-mm. But it's good. It is very. Yeah. We might. Honey, don't one. roll your eyes at me. Husband, don't <laughs> roll your face at me. It's bigger than eyes. <laughs> but <laughs> it is good. I actually do like this. Okay. Guys, go and make this drink and then tag us. Tag us. <laughs> Told you last, last coherent words. Using the hashtag don't roll your face at me. <laughs> so I think I like the spook factor in my true crime stories. The unsolved cases that get your mind all in a tangle. Sorry, that sounded so poetic. (laughs) The tequila's getting to me. (laughs) Before I tell my story, I'm going to tell a little story. (laughs) (laughs) Good lord. (laughs) Guys, we're getting there, I promise. A young couple are out on a date. They go see a movie, grab some sprees, and decide to go drive around. Candy. And <laughs> I have no idea why I have them Is in my story. Drink that I don't know about. <laughs> they go to a movie, grab some sprees, and decide to go drive around. They drive up an unpaved road up near a lake and park. They listen to the music on the radio, do some talking, which leads to a little kissing. As they're kissing, a news bulletin cuts into the music on the radio. Attention, attention, townspeople. The terribly dangerous hook-handed killer has broken out of the local insane asylum and is on the loose. He will kill again. He is out for blood. The girl gets scared and begs for her date to take her home. At that moment, they hear scratches on the outside of the car. The boy puts the car in. What was that supposed to be scratching as you tap on the desk? Okay, mom. Me scratch the window. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. The boy puts the car in drive and drives the scared girl home. When he gets out to let his date out of the car, he finds a bloody hook hanging on the outside of the car door. Okay, so we've all heard this urban legend or, you know, similar stories to the hook handed man. But did you know it was loosely based on a real killer? No. Imagination has gone a bit crazy with this story over time, so I will do my best to just stick to the facts. News media named this killer the Phantom Killer or the Phantom Slayer. I'm going to tell you about this killer, and these murders are known as the Texarkana Moonlight Murder. Mur- <laughs> murders. Great. The killings happened in a good old southern Christian town called Texarkana. The town itself actually sits on the state line of Texas and... Let me guess, let me guess, Arkansas? Yeah, tequila. (laughs) (laughs) The killer struck in the spring of 1946 on weekends at night to only couples. The killings only lasted four months but the fear stuck around for a very long time after. On the evening of February 22, 1946, 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis and 19-year-old Mary Larry went out on a date. They went out to a movie and decided on the way home to drive a bit down an unpaved, secluded road. Which, uh, listeners, hello, are you there? (laughs) 
this is my second story about unpaved back roads. Deja vu. Stay off of them. (laughs) Unless you live off one, stay off of them at night. Okay? Okay. Anyway, this road was kind of known to the local youngins as a lover's lane. Note, this road was off a main road, Richmond Road. They were parked about 100 yards from houses in a residential neighborhood. Oh, wow. Not far away. No. After a while, a little bit of necking later, maybe some sprees, I don't know, (laughs) there was a knock on the window and a flashlight being shined in on Jimmy's side. The man with the flashlight told Jimmy to get out of the car. Jimmy could barely see with the bright light in his face and told the person that he must have the wrong guy. The guy responds, quote, I don't want to kill you, fella, so do what I say, unquote. Both Jimmy and Mary were ordered out of the driver's side door where Jimmy was ordered to remove his pants. When the man hit Jimmy in the head twice with the pistol, he cracked his skull. The noise was so loud that Mary believed that Jimmy had been shot. Oh, my gosh. She thought the man wanted to rob him. So she grabbed both of their wallets to show the creep that she had nothing. They had no money. She was then hit in the head as well with a blunt object. But then she was ordered to stand and run. Oh, no. Initially, she started running towards the ditch, but he yelled and redirected her, telling her to run up the road. After running a while in her heels, might I add, the attacker catches up to her probably very easily Mm because she was hit so hard in the head and asked her, why are you running? She responded because he had told her to. And he starts yelling at her calling her a liar he throws her to the ground and i'm sorry this is kind of gruesome but he sexually assaults her with the barrel of his gun oh jeez! as he is assaulting her a bit down the road jimmy honestly magically i believe stands up and flags down a passing car because of the headlights in the distance i believe that's why but the attacker runs mary being terrified runs as well She ran a half mile to the nearest house. She woke them up and called the police. Between the two calls, the sheriff, Bill Presley, and other officers arrived at the scene of attack. Upon questioning, now here's the spook factor. Jimmy claimed that he couldn't make out the man because the flashlight was being shined in his eyes. Mm -hmm. But he saw the man's hands and he was tall, about six feet, and his hands were white. But Mary, who saw the man a little more clear, said that, yes, he was tall, about six feet, but that he wore a white bag over his head, like a pillowcase, with two holes cut out for his eyes and a hole cut out for his mouth. Ooh. Now she claimed that at times she could see under the mask and that she believed he was black. The police actually believed the two knew the guy, but were covering for him for some reason. Not that the case wasn't taken seriously, but the town and no one really dwelled on this assault. Oh my gosh. Things moved on. Both Mary and Jimmy were hospitalized. Mary had a minor head wound and Jimmy had several skull fractures. Both obviously survived the attack, but they would be the only victims that would. About a month later, on the evening of March 23rd, Richard Griffin, 29, and his girlfriend, Polly Moore, 17. Girl, what are you doing with a (laughs) 29-year-old? 
went to eat dinner at Richard's sister's house. They left there around 10 o'clock. On their way home, they decided to drive down another secluded road in town, another known lover's lane. On the morning of March 24th, so the next day, the two were found dead in Richard's Oldsmobile sedan. The person who found them that morning thought they were asleep. Richard was found between the front seats on his knees. His pockets were pulled inside out, meaning leading the police to think he was robbed or they, you know, searched in his pockets. He was leaning forward with his head resting on his crossed hands. Obviously, it seemed very posed. Polly was laid out face down in the back seat. Evidence suggested that Polly had been killed outside of the car on a blanket, then moved into the vehicle. Both had been shot once in the back of the head, and a blood-soaked trail led from the ground into the car. Richard was shot another two times, but that looks to be done inside of the car from what the scene evidence showed. A 32 cartridge shell was also found, possibly shot from a Colt pistol. There was a citywide investigation, teamed by Arkansas and Texas police. There is a nightclub not far from where the Oldsmobile was parked with the bodies inside, called Club Dallas. Patrons and employees were all interviewed. Other possible eyewitnesses, as well as friends and family, were questioned, producing tons of leads that led nowhere. Hmm. Spring is sprung in Texarkana, and things start to settle down a bit. The town and police don't put a connection on the two assaults at all. They're just believed to be isolated events, and the city moves on. It is now April. It's a Saturday night, and 15-year-old Betty Jo Booker has a weekly gig with her band at the VFW club that night. She plays the alto saxophone. Around 1.30 a.m., her boyfriend, Paul Martin, 17, comes to pick her up. This is the last time either one is seen alive. Oh. At 6.30 a.m. Sunday, so that next morning, it's only five hours after he was seen picking Betty Jo up, Mm -hmm. Paul's body was found on the edge of the road. Blood was found further down on the other side of the road as well by a fence. He had been shot four times. Oh, jeez. His nose from behind his ribs, his right hand, as well as through the back of his neck. Betty Jo's body wasn't found until 11.30 that morning, almost two miles away from Paul's body. She was found by a local search party that was searching for her behind a clump of trees. She was on her back, fully clothed, with her right hand in the pocket of her overcoat. She had been shot twice in the chest and once in the face. Do you think she ran? So, signs show that she had been raped. So... I'll kind of get to what the police think here in a little bit, because keep in mind, like I said in the beginning, they still haven't found the guy who did this, but there are some theories as to who it was, and what it kind of looks like and what I kind of assumed from the research I did, and because she was raped, it's almost like he either made her run like he did the first victim, like he made Mary run. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, you know, she ran away and he caught up with her, but it was two miles away. So he could have taken her. He, the killer could have taken her. I, I don't know. Where was the boyfriend's car? So the car was parked in a park at a lake. And so it looks like after he went, Paul picked her up. He, they went parking. They went 
to go hook up out at this park. It was kind of known as another lover's lane. Mm -hmm. And that's where the car was. Three miles away from Betty Jo's body was where they found Paul's car. And Paul's car was a mile and a half away from Paul's body. Well, that's interesting. That kind of puts a little different spin on it. Exactly. So it was parked outside Spring Lake Park, and the keys were still in it. The timeline of how everything happened is unknown, but it was assumed the two had parked there, and like the original case where they survived, they were ambushed by the killer. The examinations of the bodies showed that the two put up a good fight. The weapon used in both of these gruesome killings was the same in the other Lover's Lane murder less than a month ago, a thirty-two automatic Colt pistol. Now all the cases are put together. Even the first one? And Yep, and the town starts getting terrified. Lover's Lanes were being avoided at this point. Mm-hmm. Young kids were either avoiding them, actually, or parking there on purpose. Oh, gosh, yeah. Pretending kids. to be necking. Keep in mind, guys, we're talking about Texas. So they were actually waiting out there with loaded guns, (laughs) baiting the killer. Police officers were even disguised, dressing younger and parking on abandoned roads as well. That is so something your brother would do. Probably. I'm (laughs) calling him out right (laughs) now. (laughs) Probably. Dark, unpaved roads Parks, lovers' lanes were the unsafe locations for couples until Friday evening, May 3rd, 37-year-old Virgil Starks and his wife, Katie Starks, were in their home for the evening. They lived in a modest home on a 500-acre farm about 10 miles northeast of Texarkana on the Arkansas side. Virgil was settling down in his armchair listening to his favorite weekly radio show, reading the Texarkana Gazette. He was a farmer, as well as a welder, and his back was sore from his day at work. His wife, Katie, gave him a heating pad around 9 p.m., then went to her bedroom to lie down. She heard something in the backyard and yelled to Virgil to turn the radio down. Seconds later, Katie heard breaking glass from the front room where Virgil had been. She heard the glass, but not the gunshots that came in through the window. They had hit Virgil in the back of the head. Oh, jeez. Katie came running into the room to see Virgil attempt to stand, blood coming from his head. Then he slumped back into his chair. Katie tried to help him back up, but when she realized that he was dead, she called the police from the wall crank phone in the kitchen. While on the phone, Katie was shot twice in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek, the other just below her lip, trapping itself under her tongue. She fell to her knees, but only for a moment. She jumped to her feet and ran. Oh my gosh, she's still alive. Blinded by her own blood to the living room to grab their pistol. She grabbed the pistol and heard the killer at the screened-in back door trying to get in. She ran back to her room, believing she was about to be killed. She was running back to her room to write a letter. The killer scrambled around on the porch and started coming through the kitchen window now. She took the opportunity to run through the house, back through the living room, and out the front door. And in her nightgown, covered in blood, blinded by her own blood, barefoot, in the dark, Katie runs to her sister's house. No one was home. 
So she continued another 50 yards to the next house. Avi Pratter came to the door and Katie yells, Virgil's dead, and collapses on the front porch. Pratter shoots a rifle in the air to summon another neighbor. Katie was driven to the local hospital and survived. Now, when police came to the crime scene, there were some contradictory reports. One that I read said when they arrived, smoke was coming from the chair that Mr. Stark was sitting in. The heating pad had just caught fire. Another said that Stark was on the ground and the chair was already on fire. But regardless, there was a fire that was starting in the house. So immediately upon getting these calls, a blockade set up around the area to find this killer. There's no car, so the guy obviously had to have walked. So they have this barricade set up, and police are investigating the home. They found a, quote, a virtual river of blood and teeth from where Mrs. Stark had run. Uh. They were amazed she had not died of blood loss. There was so much blood. Oh, that poor woman. They found a flashlight in the hedge under the window where the shots came through. There was also smeared bloody prints and bloody shoe prints from around and inside the home from the killer as well. Even though the caliber bullets found on the scene were from a twenty-two, it was assumed that it was still the act of the phantom killer. Men driving in the area were stopped and questioned, and in the early hours of the next morning, bloodhounds were brought in as well. Two trails led to the highway, but the scent was lost. Mm. State police were called in from all over. There were suspects detained, but all were let go. There were sheriffs from four counties and over 47 officers out working around the clock to solve these cases. The Texas Rangers were even called in. The flashlight was sent to D.C. for further inspection by the FBI, but after looking into it for a few days, it is said there were no fingerprints. Uh Really? The unofficial theories for the motives for these cases was that of a, quote, sex mania, unquote. No money had been taken. Katie's purse was even laying out in the kitchen, easy for him to grab. And which is weird because it he didn't rob the couple that survived. Mm -hmm. And I didn't read anywhere about the next couple that they robbed, but his pants were turned, his pockets were turned inside out. But it just seems like a kind of a, and another thing that gets me is like he wore that pillowcase or that mask, right? Mm-hmm. So not that that makes me comfortable by any means, but if a guy comes up to me with a mask on, I'm not going to be as scared because I don't see his face, right? So if I, I don't know, I don't, well, no, like if he was going to kill me or not, because if I, if I see his face, he's going to be like, he, she sees my face, I'm going to have to kill her. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah, but if he has a mask on, do you think he was just going to sexually abuse these girls and rob them and then leave? Or was his motive to kill? Because it's really weird because then if it is him in this Arkansas case, which I don't even know if it really is, but if it is him, it really just seems like his motive was to kill. Exactly. So it's just, it's really crazy. Man, I wish she would have put a bullet between his eyes. I know. So anyway, the unofficial theories for the motives for these cases was that of a, quote, sex mania. And the Texarkana Gazette's front page that Sunday was, quote, sex mania hunted and murders. So this town just snowballs into hysteria. 
of course. Before it was okay to leave your house unlocked to run an errand or two and just, you know, stay away from lovers' lanes. But now, like, their homes are not even safe. Mm -hmm. Out on their farms, they're not even safe. Stores started selling out of locks and screen door hooks through this panic. Everyone was on edge. And everyone had guns, Mm because this is Texas. So it became kind of a scary place to be for a while. People would sit outside and command the names of the people walking by. And if you didn't announce yourself, you'd be shot. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, nobody trusts. It was a no. community and of fear. When husbands traveled for work, wives and their children would go and stay at the local Hotel Grimm downtown. That was just known where the wives would go when their husbands traveled for work. Oh, my goodness. They just didn't want to be alone. I even read that they would make booby traps around their homes. With wires and pots and pans. And I just, when I was reading that, I'm just picturing Kevin McAllister from Home Alone. (laughs) Hey, his booby traps worked, so. (laughs) So that's it. A killer was never captured and the murder stopped. The town does like to lean into the murders now. There was a movie made about the killings. It's called The Town That Dreaded Sundown. And the town plays it in the park where Betty Jo and Paul had been killed every Halloween. And the Northridge Country Club holds an annual phantom ball benefiting local charities every year. So here are a couple of theories of who the killer could be. Okay. So one theory is H.B. Duty Tennyson. He confessed to some of the killings in a note left behind after he killed himself, apparently. Sheriff reported in a newspaper that the note said, quote, Why did I take my own life? Well, when you committed two double murders, you would too. Yes, I did kill Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin in the city park that night and killed Mr. Stark and tried to get Mrs. Stark. Duty's cousin, forensic psychiatrist Dr. John Tennyson, said that Duty did have connections to all the victims. He was an usher in the movie theater where victims had been before deaths. Right. Was in the same high school band as Betty Joe, and his friend lived with the sister of Katie Starks. So you're saying this kid is like 15. He was in the same Betty Joe, and she was 15? Yes. So, so if he was in the same band, then he must have been like 15, 16, 17. Right. He was, well, up to 18 in high school. She was uh, a yeah, freshman. Yeah, but still, I mean... Yeah, He's no, he was, he was young, exactly. But sources of the note are kind of hearsay. People wanted answers, so I think the sheriff was just trying to give answers. Uh, it could have easily been just made up. I read that it was just really shoddy reporting. So the next theory was UL Lee Swinney or Swiney. Swinney. Swinney. We're going to say Swinney. So he was 29 at the time of the murders. Arkansas state troopers noted that cars were reported stolen and later found abandoned uh, whenever the killer made an attack. They started, like, staking out a parking lot where a stolen car had been abandoned. Mm -hmm. And while watching, they find Peggy Swinney, the new wife to UL, getting into that car. So while in custody, she detailed statements saying that her husband committed the murders. Descriptions of her own involvement varied statement to statement. On July 23rd, she gave a statement that on the evening of April 13th, she and Uel were at Spring Lake Park 
parked and drinking some beers. According to her statement, he told her that he had to go to the bathroom and he got out of the car. He was gone for about an hour. It's a long <laughs> pee break, sister. <laughs> While he was gone, she heard what sounded like two gunshots. He was in a rush when he got back to the car. His clothes were all wet up to his waist. But then on July 24th, she gives another statement saying that Ewell told her that he was headed to the park that night to rob somebody. <laughs> okay, honey, I'll see you afterwards. Peggy <laughs> said she went with him to Paul Martin's car. Ewell pointed a gun at both Paul and Betty Joe and told them to get out of the car. Peggy held on to Betty Joe but refused to search them, which made Ewell very mad, and he shot Paul twice. Ewell made her hold on to Betty Joe while he went to get his car. He came and picked both girls up, drove by, and shot Paul two more times because apparently Paul had moved after the first two shots. Peggy stayed in the car while Ewell took Betty Joe into the woods. When he came back, he told Peggy that he had tried to, quote, get some from the young girl, but when she refused, he shot her. So multiple statements. With the same killings, but totally different stories. She was involved, and then she wasn't involved, or whatever. <laughs> Even though her story changed, she did give information that only someone at the scene of the crime would have known. Oh, no. Paul's date book was thrown into the bushes. The police didn't report that, but she said she remembers seeing Paul's date book in the bushes. Ewell was arrested at the bus station. He was getting back from Atlanta from selling a stolen car. He's a real good guy, let me tell you. He told nothing to the cops about the murder. He wouldn't talk. And unfortunately, Peggy's statements against Ewell were unusable. She could not testify against Ewell because, because they, they were married. Were married. And I actually read that they had only been married a few hours before the cops picked her up. <laughs> That's convenient. So, Ewell was taken to Little Rock and was given a truth shot. A truth serum shot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he was given too much and he passed out. <laughs> Peggy was imprisoned for auto theft but was later released and Ewell was sentenced to life in prison for basically being a habitual criminal. He was released on parole <laughs> in 73. We just don't like you, so <laughs> yeah. we're going to put you in jail. He just had, like, so much auto theft and, like, he just was just a yucky guy. But he was released on parole in 73 because he apparently didn't have proper representation on a car theft charge in 41. He died in a nursing home in 94. So the last theory is that this killer was actually... The Zodiac Killer. Oh, really? Because it has the same MO. Lover's Lanes. Flashlight in the face to blind them. Mm -hmm. Creepy pilly, pilly case. <laughs> creepy pilly case. <laughs> Doesn't make it so creepy. <laughs> How they were killed. But the only thing is the age seems to be a bit off. Maybe not, but Zodiac does seem inspired a little by the Texarkana murders. Times would have mean put the Zodiac, if this was a Zodiac, he would be, like, a teenager. Like, really young. And why was he in Texas? Yeah, why was he? But it's very similar, so it's almost like he's a little inspired. Okay, by so the maybe Texarcana, it wasn't him, by but... By the Texarkana murder. 
Maybe they knew each other. I don't know. But uh, that's what I got for you, girlfriend. Yeah, you said that was creepy. I, 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 I go with that. And you're right. I don't know if if the guy is the same guy that did the Arkansas ones because it's so I don't different. think so. It's so different. But it's still terrifying that in the matter of four months they had oh no these it serious is, it killings. It is terrifying, yes. And then all of a sudden that all stopped. So I read in a couple places, too, that Texarkana was like some sources said it was that picturesque Rockwell kind of a, you know, they'd play pickup baseball outside. You'd leave your doors unlocked and your windows open all the time. And everybody knew everybody and everybody's friendly. But then I also read in other places, too, that Texarkana was not such a great place at the time. And that's kind of why these the first two murders were kind of just swept under the rug because stuff like that happened. Well, I was going to ask that when you when you said that is like, does this happen often? I mean, I is that why? I know. So I don't really know which way to lean there on how. I mean, if you live there, I'm not attacking your city at all. But I, I really don't know the honest what it was in the 40s in Texarkana. But very creepy murders regardless if it was one guy or multiple men that's super creepy yeah yeah and the pillowcases pilly case is what really gets me though that is so scary just that that i don't know anyway mom stop rolling your face at me oh this is my best this is my favorite part now i get to just sit back drink the drink sit back and sip yep all right so I am going to do uh, my paranormal on the old Alton Bridge. So science fiction writer Arthur Clarke once wrote, There stand 30 ghosts, for that is the ratio by which the dead outnumber the living. Ooh. So it stands to reason that in a state as big as Texas, you don't have to look far for haunting. Not at all. Sounds like it. There are hotels, theaters, schools, hospitals, all with their own tale of the supernatural. So I chose a location that's a little different, which then you kind of trump me with the uh, Robert doll. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that was creepy. Hold on. Is this the place that they went to in Ghost Adventures? Gosh, I don't know. Oh. In this place, it seems the air itself feels thick with spirits of the past, or are they spirits that were conjured up in the present? Ah, kind of like Lizzie Borden. So I'm speaking of Goatman's Bridge. Oh, 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 so scary. (laughs) In Denton, Texas. Yes. It is a draw for many paranormal investigators, including ghost adventures. Okay, sorry. Didn't want to ruin your story, Mom. (coughs) And I'll refer to them throughout. They visited the location in season 13, episode 13. Ooh, lucky number 13. Okay, first the history of the bridge. So Goatman's Bridge, or Old Alton Bridge, was constructed in 1884. The bridge connected Louisville and Old Alton, which has since been abandoned because of the poor quality of water in the Hickory Creek. In fact, there's a cemetery Close to the bridge where many children of Old Alton were buried. Their deaths due to the bad water that the residents were forced to drink and use. Oh, wow. 
In the daytime, the same creek snakes quietly and quite beautifully, banked by thick woods from which you can hear birds chirping and squirrels chattering. Chatter, chatter, chatter. <laughs> chatter, chatter. The bridge itself is a stretch of wooden planks and sun-bleached red metal, making it very photographic, um, especially on a sunny day when the sun glimmers off the metals. So I've kind of set the scene here in the daytime. It just seems very like lush and green. And it is, and, and, and quiet. You have a lot of photographers and stuff that do because they uh, come there because there are a lot of very picture-worthy scenes. They have since constructed a new bridge um, that cars use. So cars are not allowed anywhere near this bridge. They don't use it anymore to cross. Okay. So it's just pedestrian. So the legend has... dare. <laughs> so the legend has... Well, we're just still talking about the daytime. <laughs> it's beautiful in the daytime. <laughs> so that's what you're... This is what it's about, Mom? It's just a beautiful location? Yeah. Okay. I, I thought I'd change things up a little bit. All right. The legend has it that Oscar Washburn, an African-American goat farmer, made his living selling goat meat and milk and cheese and yarn that his wife actually spun. He was said to be a quiet man, so not many of the people in the area actually knew his name and instead gave him the name Goatman because of his job. To help folks find his farm, Oscar painted a sign, This Way to Goatman's. And he hung it on the bridge. Gotcha. Unfortunately, the sign also drew the attention of the Ku Klux Klan. What was that? You say it. Ku Klux Klan. The KKK. I don't want to say it too many times because I don't like them. (laughs) In 1938, Oscar and his family were doing very well with the goat venture. This was something the Klan did not want to see. An African-American doing well. The Washburns became a target for the Klan. One night, Klan members paid a visit to the farm. Oscar was kidnapped, a rope was tied around his neck, and he was thrown over the side of Old Alton Bridge. Mm. The group went down to the creek's banks to check out their work, but found no body, only an empty noose. This angered the Klansmen, so they went up and they killed the remaining Washburn family and burned their home to the ground. Oscar was never seen again. So is it he that haunts the area around the bridge? And I will say that going back into actual history records, Mm -hmm. there is no actual... I mean, you can't find this story. Is it a legend? But anyway, we'll talk about that. (laughs) Or is this place haunted because the area is indeed a point of interest for satanic rituals? seances and paranormal investigations but why did that because of the legends that brought everything there okay so peggy vickers head of lake city paranormal investigations has led groups to the site on several occasions she said that she has seen orbs heard voices and some people have even been scratched She said she has spoken to the police about the satanic rituals and they have confirmed that they do take place in the thick surrounding woods. Oh, gosh. The police, this is a quote, the police sometimes come out here just to check around and make sure nothing is going on. And they have seen people out here with fires going and robes on. Robes on? For the satanic rituals, I'm assuming. Oh, gosh. 
So if this is really what's going on, then we know that conjuring demons is definitely a way to mess with the paranormal, and not in a good way. This is evident by what some of the witness attests to in the Ghost Adventures episode that I mentioned. One woman felt a burning sensation on her arm and found three marks on the spot that hurt. On a different occasion, another woman felt a terrible burning on her back, and she later found, again, three scratch marks running the length of her back. Oh, gosh. It seems this entity likes to prey on women. If you remember, I think it is it's Jay's wife. Her name is Ashley. Yes. Um, and she was actually a part of the Ghost Adventures crew. She was a photographer for them. Yeah. So she was overtaken by something as she ventured into the woods. She became very emotional, tears just flowing. And then she felt very aggressive, especially towards men and Zach in particular. Well, I think a lot of people <laughs> have those feelings. <laughs> if you remember <laughs> Zach talking to her in the camper and she's like, I haven't seen this episode in so long. Do you want to hurt someone? Yes. Do you want to hurt me? <laughs> <laughs> and she like turns to him and nods. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, my God. There are also stories of young girls wandering into the woods and not coming out again for many years, returning when they're young women, but remembering nothing of the years in the woods. That's incredibly odd. So, again, is that legend or is that... Right. Local legend but has why, it... So, why would a... If the legend is true, why would he want to hurt girls? They're not the KKK. They didn't hang him. Well, maybe it's the demonic presence. Yeah, that's true. I guess. So, um, the one story I read as little girl ventured into the woods i forget what how old she is just a little one and she was holding a teddy bear and the next day a young woman about between 20 and 25 was laying dead on the banks of the river with the same teddy bear wait what how did she get it that no no answers so the little girl went there with her family to like take a walk no no she wandered off and she was never seen again and the next day they found this young lady. Anyway, that was a report that I read. So it was not a police report. <laughs> no, was I was like, <laughs> was I was sitting here like, well, dang, Mom, you should do an episode <laughs> on that. It was just, you know, y you get so many stories. Oh, and my you gosh. Can't it's verify, a black hole you can't on the web. verify any of them. So local legend has it that if you visit the bridge at midnight and either knock on the steel of the bridge three times. Knock three times on, on the bridge if you need me. me. I sing my song. Well, I was or drive the onto the bridge, turn off the car lights and honk three times. Gosh, this well, is quite the code here. Which you can't do now because you can't drive a can't car. Drive a car. <laughs> right. You are listening to me. <laughs> yes, I am. You may summon the goat man. Reports have had it that the, poli uh, the people have seen glowing red eyes in the darkness, the stench of decaying flesh, or a, quote, goat man holding the head of a goat under each arm. The heck? What has also been Quite reported... Quite the party going on under there. <laughs> <laughs> what has also <laughs> been reported a few times, and this happened on Ghost Adventures... People have reported being thrown while in the woods. Who was thrown in Ghost Adventures? Aaron. He was? 
On Ghost Adventures, Aaron was thrown or picked up and flung about 20 feet. Say what? Yeah, because his this. he don't have, he like yelled and they rushed back to him and his his pack that he was carrying backpack or whatever it was one in one place where he had been standing and he yeah. was like 20 feet away where he, and he was just getting up. So everything I've talked about are legends mm-hmm. or stories about the bridge, even the tragic event of the night the goat man, like I said, was killed. These are not found as historically true. We do, however, know that the 1930s were a very dark time in our nation as far as racial relations. So we know that incidents such as what happened to the, quote, goat man did in fact happen around the U.S. Of course. That being said, a lot of legends and tales do tend to be based on some truths. Truths. Some what, Mom? And have some truths in them, which is really funny because Beth and I don't compare stories beforehand no, at all. No, we don't. And you started with a legend mm-hmm. that was based on a truth. Ew, Mom, that <laughs> Isn't is that weird. crazy? <laughs> I just tied it to both together without doing that oh on purpose. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to throw out to our listeners that if any of you have ever visited Goatman's Bridge and have experienced any paranormal activity... Please post your experience on any one of our sites, and I will share those on the podcast, with or without your name, whatever you want, but we'd love to hear from you. I, I just really want some true, st- I mean, you know, true, true stories. True stories. What we tell you are not true, <laughs> guys. Just Let's lie. just be real. <laughs> no, I want some personal experiences. Oh, I some know. True of, anywhere, exp- yeah. of anywhere out there. Anyway, that's Goatman's Bridge. Awesome. <laughs> Legends and truths. Yes. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Next week, we're going to be telling some stories from Minnesota. Like mom said, we love your stories. And if you have one, two, three, four, whatever. Send them. Send them. <laughs> Killer Hangover Podcast at gmail.com. You can also message us on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Killer Hangover Podcast. We always post pictures of the episode the day that it comes out every Monday. So it's kind of fun as you listen to look at those pictures and kind of get a visual of the stories we're telling. Actually, Beth does do that and she does a great job doing it. So oh, I shucks, that. mom. <laughs> and it does add to listening to the podcast it by really looking does. at those pictures. Thanks, guys. Again, we'll, you'll hear us. <laughs> we won't hear you. <laughs> I always want to say, see you next week, but that doesn't happen. So, well, this drink is empty. (laughs) Cheers, Mama. Love you, kid.